0: You're listening to the CTK O'Fallon podcast. Made the right choice. Amen. To be here tonight. Praise the name of the Lord. And uh, if you're not here tonight, thank you for joining us online. So I hope that uh, everyone will join us online as well not able to be here. I just, as pastor, sometimes I like to believe that everybody that can't be here is always online watching. So whether or not there's anybody there, thank you for watching online. And uh, if you can't be with us tonight, you can follow along as best as able. Now you have been given two handouts, which is too confusing for you to try to even look at yet. So just lay those down. And let's ask the Lord to have his way tonight. We need the help of the Holy Ghost to help us. I'm going to want the Holy Ghost to have his way tonight. Amen. And I want God's spirit to be with us. Thank you for being in the house of the Lord so much. What a blessing it is to serve here at CTK. What a tremendous time we had in the Holy Ghost last night in prayer meeting too. And I thank God for the spirit. Would you pray with me tonight? Let's just ask the Lord to have his way. Come on, lift your heart toward heaven. Lord, I thank you tonight that we can come into your house, that we can come boldly before your throne room of grace to obtain mercy, that we can exalt you and lift you up. I thank you for everyone that's here under the sound of my voice. Thank you for every blessing, God, that you've given to us. Lord, you see every need and every circumstance and every situation tonight, Lord, and I pray that you would strengthen the body of Christ. Pray that you'd edify your people, God. Strengthen the church. Let the Holy Ghost strengthen us tonight. Strengthen our faith, God. Let our faith not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. We thank you tonight. Let the unction of the Holy Ghost rest upon us. I ask in this place, by the power of your word, in Jesus' name. And everybody said, in Jesus' name. Amen. Clap your hands unto the Lord. We thank God. Lord, we praise you. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. I want to take some time tonight to talk about some technicalities, if we can, from the Word of God. Technicalities from the Word of God. I understand that this may be one of the most controversial uh, lessons that I teach here at CTK, and uh, I give you Uh, It's all right if you maybe don't understand or uh, agree with maybe absolutely everything I say. I'm praying for you. You pray for me. But we are going to be a little controversial here tonight from the context and perspective of traditional Christianity. But uh, how many know a little controversy is good every once in a while? I've titled this tonight, and they they did the title based off of a study of my dear friend, and the title I gave them was The Timetable of the Tomb. They put that on the live stream. And then I asked them if they would change the title um, to Was Christ Crucified on Friday? So I don't know. Are you able to change the title on the live stream after the fact? You've got to give me a thumbs up. It's already done. <laughs> However, but this is this is an interesting question. Was Christ crucified on Friday? So that probably grabs a little bit more attention, gives a little bit of, uh, uh, of an interesting or idea, scope of where we're going tonight. But I want to talk about the timetable of the tomb, and we're going to walk through the Scripture here. And then I've given you these charts to reference. Now, these charts that you have are just a few pages out of a study done by my dear friend, uh, Reverend Clifford Readout. And uh, about 12 years ago, I think it was 12 or 13 years ago, I went through a study that he had done in depth that he hadn't taught very much because it's such a technical study. It hangs on the technical aspects of what Scriptures are saying. And he doesn't teach it because it's not not something that makes you feel warm and fuzzy because most of the people studying this study already believe that Jesus came, that Jesus was God, that He died on a cross, God manifested in flesh, and that He rose again. And so, uh, there's not a lot of, uh, uh, I guess, controversy. not a lot of argument. People, we just, we know it, we know it happens. So we don't, we don't focus on it too much. But there is a portion of the world that this is very relevant to, because one of the biggest um, critiques of Christianity is sometimes some of the things that we present. They uh, they reject Christianity on a whole because of what they see presented, and so that's what I want to address tonight. And I don't know where this will go, but uh, I do believe. Are we uh, see February, March? We March, is it is it Ramadan right now? Are we in Ramadan right now? We're in Ramadan right now, still in Ramadan, which is uh, uh, the Islamic tradition of fasting during this holy month that they have. One of their biggest critiques, one of Islam's biggest critiques, two big critiques of Christianity that they have. Number one, uh, critique the traditional interpretation of the Trinity as uh, as uh, given by the, the historical Catholic church. We would reject that here at CTK. We believe that there is one God, yeah. one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We believe that that one absolute omniscient, omnipresent uh, God made uh, himself flesh, came down, dwelt among us, and that is the incarnation. He did not cease to be God, even though he now placed his locale in the body of Jesus Christ for the fullness of the Godhead dwelleth in him. And he came down and he dwelt among us he was God manifest in the flesh, the everlasting father, the mighty God on earth. And then that that incarnation, that, that uh, mystery of godliness, God and flesh, uh, that goes to the cross. He goes to the cross and he dies. His flesh, physical flesh, feels all of the things that were put upon him, and the flesh dies. But uh, three days later, he raises again, resurrects. No man can do this. Only God can do this. And so that, that same Jesus, who is crucified, is now both Lord and Christ, Peter said that was important because he said that same Jesus whom you crucify is now made both Lord and Christ, meaning he is the almighty God and he is our Messiah. And that Jesus told us, you go to Jerusalem, you wait until you be endued with power from on high, the promise of the Father, I'm going to send it. In John 14, he said, I'll send the comforter in my name. And then he said, I will come to you, fulfilling Jeremiah's prophecy that I would make a new covenant covenant, and I would write my law in your hearts. And so we believe that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are all one. A man, one God, different manifestations, the traditional interpretation of the Trinity, uh, historically would espouse that there were three separate co-equal, co-eternal persons. And Islam rejects that because they know that there was no room for a plurality of deity right. among Abraham's God. And so they reject it for the same reason that a lot of uh, uh, you know Judaism would would say also reject Christianity. And you hear me say that we don't we don't uh, accept the traditional interpretation of the Trinity because uh, a lot of people forget that historically uh, there were I think it was nine different acceptable uh, interpretations. Of the Trinity, one of them would have been more of a oneness stand that we would have that we would have agreed with, and so uh, sometimes there's some some technical stuff that's involved in all of that. But Islam rejects Christianity based on that. Uh, the Trinity, and so does Judaism. So you have a you have something that a lot of people don't have. When you say, "Well, you know, I, I reject uh, I reject the traditional interpretation. I believe there's only one God, and I believe that one God came Himself came Himself down here." And all of a sudden, you get their attention because okay, that's something different. The second thing that they reject Christianity over is this. They believe that Jesus was a a good teacher, that he was a, a, a whatever, a person that actually lived, but they reject the gospel account because Jesus said that he would die and in three days he would rise again. So in Matthew chapter 20 and verse number 19, Jesus said this when he was talking to his disciples, and he shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him. And the third day he shall rise again. Later on, when the uh, after, after he was crucified, after he was buried, they come to Jesus, or they don't come to Jesus, they come back to uh, Pilate and they said, Pilate, uh, we're afraid that they're going to steal his body out of the tomb. And so what did Pilate say? He said, command, therefore, that the sepulcher be made sure unto the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people, he has risen from the dead, so the last heir shall be worse than the first. The big problem is Friday to Sunday does not equal three days. And so Islam rejects it because you don't even believe what your own teacher told you. And so they, they, they just throw it out. So there is a dilemma here. What, what, what happened here? Because, and, and I don't want to rain on anybody's parade, but uh, how many have celebrated Good Friday most of your life? Celebrated Good Friday, a lot of times I've gone to Good Friday services and stuff like that and, and uh, felt the Holy Ghost at Good Friday services. But I'm here to tell you tonight that the Bible does not teach that Jesus was crucified on a Friday. Now, don't just take my word for it. We're going to walk through Scripture, and I'm going to to show you conclusively how it is not possible for Him to have died on what we today are calling a Friday, or let's say this, because... We're going by the Gregorian calendar. Um, they didn't even, the Jews didn't even operate by the Gregorian calendar. Uh, Friday for us is the sixth day of the week, okay? And Sunday for us is the first day of the week. I'm going to show you in Scripture how it is not possible that Jesus Christ was crucified on the sixth day of the week, it's right here before us. So there's, there's no mystery here. So why does this matter? You say, Pastor, why are you taking a whole Wednesday night to talk about this? Because we all believe it doesn't matter. I wasn't there. By the way, I wasn't there either. Okay, so I don't, I don't know all of, all of that. Why does this matter? Well, here's why it matters. It may not matter to you and me because we say, look, I don't have to figure it out. I just trust that it happened and I put my faith in him and that's all I need. And that's totally fine. I think you can be saved not knowing whether or not it was a Friday or a Tuesday or a Monday or a whatever. You don't even try to... I don't, I don't think God's going to stand at heaven's door. Praise the Lord and say, wait, wait, let's see you. You missed this point on this test. You almost made it. You know, I I don't think that's, I don't think that that's how the Lord's going to be. I think that, um, you know, our faith in him our putting him first that whatever it takes for us to get to that point is, is what's critical. But does it matter? Yes, it does matter. Why does it matter? Well, it matters because there's people that are looking at us and looking at Scripture and looking at Christianity and saying, what you are saying does not add up. Therefore, I'm not going to put any faith in anything you say, and I'm not going to trust your God. So I do believe that it matters. Why? Because either Jesus does what he said he would or he doesn't. So either he does what he said he would or he doesn't. And he said, he said, the third day I will rise again. And he said that many times. He said it multiple times. You can go back. And so tonight, we're going to run through a bunch of scriptures. I'm going to give you a bunch. There's some charts here. There's a ton of scriptures. And you can take these back, and you can vet these and run through these. I have been through all of these scriptures more than once, many times. I love the technicality of all this stuff. I've tried to figure it out. When I got into it, I had more questions than I had answers. And I worked through it until I figured some things out. But what I can tell you this is the Word does not lie. And the word does not contradict itself. And that's really the issue because when people start studying, they start looking at scripture because of the way it's been presented. And they walk away thinking that the Bible contradicts itself. And therefore, if the Bible contradicts itself, then I'm not going to put my faith in it. So that's why I believe that it matters tonight. So we've got to go through this really quick. First, I want to say this. The problem, the the first problem we're going to seek to fix tonight is the problem that Jesus said he would die for three days and three nights, and then he would rise again. Okay, he would be buried, and on the third day, he would rise again. And yet, if we have him being crucified on a Friday afternoon but resurrected before sunrise on Sunday then you've you you've barely got a day and a half actually in that time frame and it really doesn't even work out so here how did we get to this place how do we get to this place well we got there because there was a faulty assumption there was a faulty assumption and i'm going to tell you, first of all today we're we're approaching we're approaching a uh, the Scripture from a Western modern context. Now, there's been church people from eons past, history that's been way smarter than me. But somehow, someone along the way made this assumption and institutionalized this kind of celebration of honoring Jesus' uh, death uh, on the cross on Friday. And in a time where the church was monetizing everything, they would create a holy day. Every day of the year was a certain day. And on this day, you had to give this offering and do this and all this stuff. And they come up with this great thing, Good Friday, whatever. But. The faulty assumption is this, and if you want to write this down, this is key. This is key to everything. The faulty assumption is that there is only one Sabbath day during this week. That's the faulty assumption, and that throws everything off. If you approach the story and you think there is only one Sabbath day in the week, you're going to end up reading the Bible, and you're going to end up making the mistake of thinking, well, he was crucified, and then because the Sabbath day was coming, they hurried up and buried him, and then as soon as the Sabbath day was over, he rose again, and that's how you end up walking away with a day and a half. But the problem is it's laying right here in front of us the whole time, But we're approaching the text from a Western, modern, non-Jewish, Gentile perspective, and we're missing that there is more than one Sabbath day that is together. And I'm going to use the Word of God to show you why this makes sense. A difference. This is a special week. It's the Passover. It's the Passion Week. It's a special week, and I can confirm it biblically that there would be more than one day this week that would be considered an holy day. Now, I want to make a couple of disclaimers. Number one, the first disclaimer I'm going to make is this, that I think that translations matter. Now, you hear me a lot, and I'll use different translations. I love to collect Bibles, and I have different translations and read through in different translations. But I would say translations matter. I, I uh, always go back to the KJV. I think the KJV is the best option for an English-speaking, English reader. The translation is uh, excellent. The problem I would have, or most people have with the KJV or the King James Version, the Authorized Version, is not that the KJV is incorrect. It's that it was written in a language that is still evolving, and what it meant in 1611 is not always the same thing it means in 2023. And so you have an evolving language. So sometimes we'll go to a more modern translation. You've heard me quote from the NLT often. I like the NLT because of its ease of use and accessibility. But in this instance, in this study, I would tell you that the NLT is actually dangerous because it gets the Passion Week so wrong. It's so bad that in the Gospel of Mark, it actually gives an alternate ending. And it it implies that maybe Mark's gospel didn't even include the resurrection, but it was added later. So translations do matter. So now reading them devotionally, you want to read, you're trying to read through, okay, it doesn't matter. But when you're coming down to technicalities and hanging on things, the absolute best option is for you to know and to be fluent in biblical Hebrew and Greek. (laughs) That's the best. But when you can't do that, the KJV is an excellent option for English-speaking people today. And there are some other translations that can be beneficial as well. So we obviously refer to them. But for this, I'm using the KJV here. I think it's important. The second thing, the second disclaimer, and we'll begin with the first chart here called the Biblical Hebrew Day. This is very important. We approach our day from a 24-hour clock period. This has not always been the case in the, biblical, in the biblical understanding. The day, according to the Bible, was established as written in the book of Genesis. And it was the evening and the morning were the first day. So the day literally begins with the evening or the nighttime right here. And they gave me this trusty little pointer so I can show you. Because this right here is a day, a 24-hour period. It starts out with the night. So sundown, this sundown right here. And these times that are put on here are arbitrary. These are average times. This time obviously fluctuate throughout the, the yearly calendar as sun sets and rises different, it adjusts. But just for general purposes, there's a, there's a time here So let's say 6 p.m. is sundown. So 6 p.m. and 6 a.m. is sunrise. That The day does not begin when the sun rises. The day in the Bible and in the Jewish tradition begins when the sun goes down. So as soon as the sun goes down, that's a new day. So Sabbath did not begin when the sun came up. Sabbath begins when the sun goes down and once the sun sets, that's the new day. That's why there was this rush to take Jesus off the cross and not only Jesus, but the other two thieves that were crucified with him. You remember that in the story where they said, Hey, we've got to make sure that they die, go out and break their legs. So they die quicker. That's literally in the story because we've got, they've got to die so we can take them down because during Sabbath, it's a curse for any man to hang on tree. We can't leave him up during Sabbath because we got to bury them. And in their Jewish traditions, they had to bury somebody within a 24 hour period. And so that's why they they took Jesus down before sun went down, and that's why they threw him in a borrowed tomb because they were like, hey, here's an empty tomb. Let's put him in here. We'll figure out later. We'll figure out the 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 rest of the place later. But they were in a rush to do so because Sabbath begins at night, and then and then after that a day will come. So you have. In the night, you have four watches in the night. They didn't have a 24 hour period. They would, they would divide the night, the dark time from sundown to sunrise. They would divide it into four periods. And those four periods would be called four watches. And then in the day, let's say an average you'd have about 12 hours in a day. So the third hour of the day was approximately, give or take, somewhere around 9 a.m. The sixth hour of the day was about noon somewhere, the zenith of the sun. The the, the ninth hour of the day would be somewhere around 3 p.m. These are significant times because this is the time clock that is given. When Christ was commissioned to be crucified, it was the third hour of the day, 9 a.m. in the morning, Pilate sends him out at about noon. The sixth hour of the day is when darkness settled in. And it was, the, it was the ninth hour when he cries out with a loud voice, it is finished. This is significant here. And this encompasses one day. So you'll see this here. And there's some other little notes here. You can figure this out. But when it references evening or late even, that means sundown, the end of uh, After that point, so you can go when you're reading through the story in the Gospels, a lot of these cues are going to tell you where it is. And if you're not careful, you'll think you'll think, "Oh, it's it's afternoon or it's morning time or whatever." As the day dawns, that's not always referencing the dawn of the sun. It's talking about as the as the day is coming closer. So let's go on. Now I want to give you proofs if I can for multiple Sabbaths during the week. And I want to show you a, a few verses here if we can. So we can, we can get rid of this slide. You can, you can hold on to that in your chart here. But I want to give you proofs that there are multiple Sabbaths during this week. This is significant because if there's multiple Sabbaths, they have to have him off the cross and buried before Sabbath. And we know that he did not rise until the end of Sabbath. So if you have more than one Sabbath, then all of a sudden you've got a longer period that he's in the tomb. And I'm not just making this up. It's here the whole time in front of us, but we're jumping into the New Testament and we're reading the gospel from a Gentile perspective and we are not bringing in all that the Old Testament is telling us. Let's start in the New Testament. Let's go to John chapter 19 and verse 31. And look at this. This is John writing, and he's trying to explain the significance here. Look at what he says. He said, the Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation. We'll talk about what is the preparation. What does that mean? The feast of the Passover. There's a lot of things. Because it's going to use, it's going to say it was the first day but that's the preparation, and then it's going to say it's the Passover, and then there's the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He said it was the preparation that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, and then look at what. In in English, it's put in parentheses. There's no parentheses in the Greek, but there are the the emphasis that sort of shows this. He, he, He should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath day. Why? He explains a significant thing here. For that Sabbath day was an high day. Okay? So now what is John introducing to us today? Now John's gospel is the last gospel to be written. By time John writes the gospel, there's a large contingency of the church that is not Jewish. Mm-hmm. So this has relative uh, uh, implication to them. As the readers, he's letting them know not all Sabbaths are equal. There's difference in Sabbaths. There's, Sabbath, there's the weekly Sabbath. You have six days and you have the seven days. That's a Sabbath. You're going to have that Sabbath every seven days. No way of getting around that. But then there are high days. There are high Sabbaths. And those Sabbaths are special and significant. And they are not bound by the weekly calendar of day one, day two, day three, all the way through day seven. They are fixed to God's biblical calendar. They are a date, and one year they may fall on the first day of the week. On the next year, they may fall on the third day of the week. On the next year, they may fall on the seventh day of the week. But there's a significant thing here, because these Sabbaths, there's difference in distinctions in Sabbaths. So John is right there testifying to us that there's distinction among the Sabbaths. So this is one proof that we have that there's more than one kind of a Sabbath. The second example that we have... We know, we know, well, first of all, let's say he's talking about the Sabbath. What Sabbath is he talking about? He said it was the day of preparation. What Sabbath is he talking about? We know what that is. It's the Passover, right? The feast of the Passover. This is the high Sabbath, okay? So here's where we would make the mistake. We would be correct to know that the Sabbath he's talking about is Passover, but we would be incorrect to assume that Passover would fall on the seventh day of the week. Passover would fall on a different day of the week every year. It wasn't fixed to the day of the week. It was fixed to a date in the calendar that God gave to them. And for this, we can go to the Old Testament type. And here is where I can emphatically prove that Jesus was not crucified on the sixth day of the week because the Bible tells us the day that he rose was the first day of the week. At the end of the seventh day of the week, as the first day was coming, he rose, okay? So let's go to Exodus chapter number 12. Let's look at this, Exodus chapter number 12. This is important. This is the, fast over, the the Passover feast that he gives. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year unto you. Now, this is important. Um, first day of the month of Abib, which is the first month that's given, the first day it's on a lunar calendar. And so the first day of the first month is new moon. Okay. New moon, full moon. We can predict moon calendars from 3000 years away because the moon is following the same circadian rhythm. And every seven, every 14 days, the moon goes from a new moon to a full moon, back to a new moon, back to a full moon. We've known that man can observe that. So the first day of the month, the very beginning of the year is a new moon. So you will not see. On that first night, you will not see the moon at all. It will rise and fall with the sun during the daytime. You won't see it. But on the 14th day will be a full moon. So look at what he says here. Speak ye unto the congregation of Israel, saying, look at this, verse 3. In the 10th day of the month, they shall take to them every man a lamb according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. Okay. Okay. So why is this significant? Because he's giving the calendar and now he's telling them dates to mark on the calendar. Day 10. Day 10 is significant because day 10 is the day that the lamb will be chosen. Day 10 in the Old Testament is the day the lamb will be chosen. I'll give you a I'll give you a a big hint. Guess what day it was when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey in a triumphal entry and they praised him as king. Day 10. The lamb would be chosen, okay? And your lamb without blemish, verse 5, a male the first year you shall take it out of the sheep or from the goats. Verse 6, and ye shall keep it. All right, so here it is. You shall keep the lamb up until the 14th day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. Now, that's confusing because we're reading that sometimes in our English. What it's saying here is you're keeping, you're selecting the lamb on day 10. Up until the 14th day you keep it, but you kill it at evening which is the beginning of the 14th day. So the lamb would be slain on day 13th of the month of Abib, and it would be slain at evening before the sun would go down. The lamb would be slain, and then the 14th day would begin. That day was Passover, would begin at sundown. Now... Okay, so go down to verse 14. Skip down to verse 14 of chapter 12. Are you with me tonight? Am I boring you here? Are you guys okay? All right, stay with me because it's going to get really good, I promise. And this day, verse 14, and this day, what's this day? He's talking about the Passover. And this day shall be unto you for a memorial and you shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. This is the first mention here. This is a high, this is that high day. Okay. This is that high day Sabbath that you are going to keep forever. It is the Passover. So the Passover is now on the calendar, the 14th day of the month of Abib, and it is forever a Passover. No matter when the day falls, whenever you get to the 14th day, it is a Sabbath. It is a holy day. It is a memorial day. But guess what? There's another day. Read on in verse 15. Seven days, now this is after the Passover, seven days shall ye eat unleavened bread. Even the first day ye shall put away leaven out of your houses. For whosoever eateth leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that soul shall be cut off from Israel. And in the first day there shall be an... Holy convocation, and in the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation to you. So now, what's he establishing? Passover is a Sabbath, but not, that's the fifth, that's the fourteenth day of the month. But then after Passover, there is a seven day period called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the first day in that period, which would be the fifteenth, is also a holy convocation. It is also a Sabbath and you will do no work, he says, during this day. And then he says, at the end of the seven days, that's another Sabbath. There will be another Sabbath at the end of those seven days. No matter when that falls on day 21 in that month, there's also going to be a special Sabbath. Go down and look at this in verse 18. He says, in the first month on the 14th day of the month at even, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 1 and 20th day of the month at even. So he, he now, did you notice that? How many days are in that count there? From 14 to 21. Nope. Eight. 14 plus 7 is 21, but if you include day 14, that's eight days. There's an eight-day stretch here. So the Passover on the 14th is a Sabbath. The 15th is the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Breads. That is a Sabbath. And then the eighth day of that week, or the seventh day of that week, the eighth day in the period, the 21st day of the month, that also is going to be a Sabbath. So here is how I can prove that Jesus was not crucified on a Friday. And that is if He was crucified on a Friday, as some suppose was rushed in, put into a tomb because the Sabbath was coming, there had to at least be two Sabbaths. Because this isn't new news. We're reading from Exodus. This is one of the oldest books that the Israelites would have had. So for hundreds of years, they've been observing Passover. For hundreds of years, there was two consecutive Sabbath days at least always together. And we know because all four gospel accounts testify that when he resurrected, it was the first day of the week. So if we know he's out of the tomb by sundown on Sunday, which we would say Saturday night, but they would say on their first day of the week, if he's out of the tomb by that point, We know we at least have to go back two full days to give space for two Sabbaths. So at best, he could have been crucified with that. At best, he would have been crucified on a Thursday. But there's another possibility, and that's that not only was there two Sabbaths consecutively established by Levitical law, but you still had in play the Sabbath day feast of first fruits which came every seventh day. And as you go through the calendar, Passover's not always on the set day of the week. One day it could be a Monday, one day it could be a Tuesday, one year it could be a whatever. And just what happened if Passover was a Thursday and Feast of Unleavened Bread was a Friday, and the Sabbath was a Saturday, you have three days and three nights that Jesus would have been in the tomb. You go back by best estimations. Scholars have tried really, really hard to try to fix the date, and on your calendar it says in the year of A.D. 32... There's a couple of people that have done work on that. Some have conjectured and say, no, it wasn't A.D. 32, it was A.D. 33. Some have speculated different things. Sir Robert Anderson, the former, uh, uh, I think, chief inspector of Scotland Yard, was a, a theologian in his hobby, and when he retired from Scotland Yard, he became an incredible preacher and minister, wrote many books. I have... I have several of his books in my library. And he went back and he did the count. He did the historical research because Daniel gives a prophecy that 173,880 days would transpire from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem to the time of Messiah. And Sir Robert Anderson goes back and digs through all of the history. We have it all. We can go back and we can pull it up. The confusing thing dating is that the Romans did not operate on a fixed calendar. Whoever became king and emperor would get up and say, this is how long a year is. They would write it down, but you have to go back and dig through all the records and put it all down. But Sir Robert Anderson was one of the first ones, I think, that I know of. Maybe he found somebody else, but one of the first ones to go back and actually do the count. From the time that the decree was announced from Media Persia that they could go back from captivity and they could march back to Jerusalem and they could rebuild the temple. At 173,800 and however many days it was that Daniel prophesied, you can look it up, it might be Daniel 9.25 off the top of my head, I can't remember. To the very day, Sir Robert Anderson fixed as well, I think maybe... Evidence that demands a verdict by Josh McDowell may have used some of that stuff. I think some of his things may be a little little uh, uh, complex or, 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 or maybe not exactly right, because I think he fixed it on a Friday. But they fixed that day to the 10th of the month, the Jewish month of Abib, which would have been the very day that Jesus Christ rode into Jerusalem, and it would have made sense If the Jews were counting that prophecy of Daniel, it makes makes the story a little bit more understandable when Jesus tells His disciples, go down and get a donkey, and when they ask you what you're doing, just tell them the Lord has need of it. What if that man was counting the days? What if there was somebody that knew? Jesus rides into the city, not in the morning like we think on Palm Sunday, but He actually rides into the city at sundown sundown happens when He enters into the city. He goes into the city, looks around, goes into the temple, retreats back, spends the night in Bethany, and then when the sun does come up, He goes back into Jerusalem, and there He takes a whip, and He drives out the money changers. That's what Jesus does. On the day that the Lamb is chosen, they worship Him and they praise Him as King. Now, Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the law. He said, I came to fulfill the law. Why would he mess up the calendar after spending hundreds and thousands of years laying it out for the children of Israel? Why would he not subject himself to the calendar? He did. They knew he was God. You can look at this here, they knew he was Messiah and he was coming. Oh, there's so much, and I don't have enough, I don't have enough time to go through everything here. The first day, and several times in, in the passage in Matt Mark 14, I think I think it's in Mark 14, maybe it's somewhere else, but I, I have all these references down here. But a lot of times in the, in the gospel, there's two or three references where it says in the first day, it calls the day of preparation, which is the 13th of the month of Abib, it calls it the first day. Why would they have called the first day, which isn't the first day, why would they call the day of preparation the first day? Because the day of preparation was the most important day in their life. That was the day that they had to have all leaven out of their house. Now, is anybody else doing spring cleaning right now and going around and cleaning out your house? Sort of some. Some need, How many need to do spring cleaning still, right? This is an annual thing for them, spring cleaning. They're going through and they are making sure there is not one grain of leaven. They completely disinfect, completely whatever, go through, and they're trying to make sure everything is out of the house. No leaven can be in. In fact, they start before that, earlier that week. But on that first day, you better, that's your last final check on the day of preparation. In anticipation of the Passover, you get all of the leaven out. On that day of preparation, Jesus Christ, He was chosen on the 10th, and then every day after, He goes to the temple. He goes to the temple, He drives out the money changers. He goes to the temple, and He teaches them. On the 11th day, He goes to the temple, and He teaches them. On the 12th day, He hangs out with His disciples because by then, they're trying to kill Him. And He doesn't go, but on the 13th day, he tells his disciples to go get a room, prep it for the Passover. And there were so many people coming at that time that there was exceptional clauses that they would have, where they would go and they would have the Passover meal, sometimes days before. But Jesus is doing something significant. He tells them to go, to, to go get ready for the meal. And he goes in on this day of preparation and he sits down with his disciples. He's getting ready to institute something new. It's not the Passover because the Passover was a meal that commemorated them coming out of Egypt. It was also a meal that they had that looked forward to Messiah. But what Jesus does is he institutes something new called the Lord's Supper. And this isn't, this isn't a meal looking forward. This is a meal looking back to what he's going to do. But he hasn't done it yet. But he tells him, take Take and drink. This is my blood. It's going to be shed for you. Take and eat. This is my body, which will be broken for you. And in that moment, while he's eating, it's the day of preparation. It is, in their culture, the final check to go through and make sure all of the leaven is out. Right. In that moment, as the sun goes down, the day of preparation has just begun. And what does Jesus do? He said, "There's one among you that doesn't have his priorities, right? and is seeking to betray me." And he sends out the leaven. He looks at Judas and says, "Go on that day of preparation, has a meal. You can read the chapters of John. He writes three or four chapters just telling the things that Jesus would teach in that intimate moment with the disciples. And then when he's done, after he washed their feet, you know the story. The Bible says that he leads them out of the city across the Kidron Valley and over to the Mount of Olives. There at the foot of the Mount of Olives, there is this olive press garden of Gethsemane. He leads him in there, this day of preparation, and he prays, if it's possible, let this cup pass for me, but nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. The flesh of Jesus is knowing what's impending. The calendar is upon him. The moment is there. If he could stop time, and he could, but he wouldn't. Nevertheless, he tells him would you not tarry with me one hour and while they are there judas comes betrays him with a kiss that same night you read the passage from mark john matthew luke you can read in that same night you go and you put all of these verses together He's taken to Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest, and Annas then sends him to Caiaphas, and Caiaphas asks him, and in this middle of the night, they have this trial, and in the middle of the night, he's trying to figure out what to do, and you know what the accusation that comes up against him, one of the biggest things that's mentioned? He said he would destroy the temple made with hands, And three days later, he would raise it up, made without hands. This was the accusation. You think it doesn't matter where we fix when he died? Because they were paying attention. The high priest invokes a Levitical law. He would not answer, and he says, okay, I adjure thee by the living God. Who are you? Are you the Christ? because he was subject to the law, Jesus answers and says, I am. And he said, there's coming a day where not one stone will be left upon another. There's coming a day where you're going to regret this. He, he pulls it out of him. Jesus responds to the word. And when he says, I am that Levitical law that he invoked over him, it was a cab. It was, it was, it was, it was a, it was a way that The high priest, they they could invoke it. And in that moment, you had to tell the truth. And they believed if you did not tell the truth, God would strike you dead. And Jesus said, I am in that moment. And two things happened. Number one, Jesus didn't fall over dead. After claiming to be God. God. And number two, the Bible says the high priest took his garment and he ripped his garment, which was prohibited by the Levitical law for the high priest to do it. And in that very act right there, there was a transfer. Caiaphas, you are no longer high priest. Here is the one that is standing before you. you. They saw it. At that they said, "Okay." In that moment, no wonder Caiaphas wanted to kill him. Yeah. What he had been shamed in front of everybody? Yet, thank God he thought it was in the middle of the night. Take him to Pilate. Let's kill him. he take him to Pilate. Pilate's wife said, look, I've had a lot of dreams. Don't you touch this man. Don't you mess with this man. Pilate tried to get out, but because of politics, he couldn't finagle his way. He finally said, okay, every year I give you a free prisoner. Why can't we let him go free? And they said, no, give us Barabbas. What do I do with this man? Crucify him. Yeah. And the third hour of the day, Pilate commissions him to be scourged and crucified. And it begins at 9 a.m. Now we're no longer in the day of preparation. Or we're still in the day of preparation. 9 a.m., he's cru- he, He's scourged by the sixth hour of the day, which is their noon. Now he is on the cross, hanging on the cross. And the Bible says that darkness comes over by the ninth hour of the day. This was, This was a grueling execution that the Romans would draw out and prolong it as long as they could. Now we're only six hours into the torture. The Roman torture was to last much longer, but six hours in, he begins to quote Psalm 22. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? My my bones are out of joint. My tongue cleaveth to the roof of my mouth. As he begins to quote this, they, they say he's, he's calling for vinegar and they bring him vinegar and they give it to him, but he, he would not take it and then finally he finishes it literally as psalm 22 ends it says it is done it shall be done but transliterated in the in in the in the modern new testament he cries out it is finished yes now we think he's crying out, it is finished because he's coming to the end of his pain. But if you're reading Psalm 22, Psalm 22 starts out pretty dark. David's saying, God, you've forsaken me. But it takes a turn about three quarters of the way through, and David starts championing God's going to complete his work. God is going to do what he said he's going to do, and it shall be done. Jesus is hanging on the cross. Imagine him quoting that. It's taken, it's going and dark it's it's not right but all of a sudden there's a turn and Jesus is declaring it shall be done it is finished in that moment on the cross hallelujah they know the Sabbath is coming, and so they rush to Pilate. Pilate, you can't leave them up there. You've got to kill them. Go out there. And they go out, and they break their legs, and they would die in minutes and seconds by suffocation on the cross because it was intended they would have to push themselves up to be able to gasp. But when they get out there, Jesus is already past. He gave up the ghost fulfilling the prophecy that not one of his bones would be broken. Right. And when they come back to Pilate, Pilate was amazed that he was dead already. Yeah. That's literally what it says. And so Joseph of Arimathea, being a private convert of Jesus, comes to him and says, look, can I take him? I, I have the means. I'll take care. Let me take him. And they take him off the cross. There's a group together. They take him down, and quickly, because Sabbath is approaching, they throw him into a sepulcher in the garden near where he was crucified, and they put him in there. And something interesting happens in the gospel account. Every gospel author, with the exception of Mark, uses the phrase, the next day. Every single one. They use it several times. But when all four gospel accounts talk about the day that Jesus resurrected, they never say the next day. If he had been crucified on a Friday, if he had been buried right before sundown, and then the Sabbath came, and then the next day was the first day of the week. Why would they not have used that term? But it's interesting to note that they never say the next day. Go with me. Look at what they do say. In Matthew 28 and verse 1, they say this, In the end of the Sabbath... Well, we already know by Exodus account that there was a minimum two days of Sabbath. We already know that. But we also know that it's very possible and highly probable that there were three days of Sabbath. Because if it really did fall in A.D. 32, as people think, and imagine you go back and you put it, the seventh day of the week would have been that third day. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn towards the first day. Now, not to be confused, that doesn't mean the dawning of the sun. That means as it's coming to the beginning of the day, at sundown came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. Look at it, Mark chapter 16 and verse 1. And when the Sabbath was passed... Mary Magdalene and the other Mary and Salome had brought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came unto the sepulcher at the rising of the sun. Luke chapter 24 and verse 1, Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came unto the sepulcher, bringing the spices which they had prepared and certain others with them. By the way, there's no less than eight different visits to the tomb. The final one in John chapter 20 and verse 1, look at what he says. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early when it was yet dark under the sepulcher and seeing the stone taken away from the sepulcher. The only time that the phrase the next day is used after the burial of Jesus Christ, go there with me. Matthew chapter number 27 is the only time the phrase the next day is used after the burial of Jesus Christ. And here's what it says. Now, the next day that followed the day of the preparation, which we know is what? The Passover, the chief priests and Pharisees came together unto Pilate saying, Sir, we remember that that deceiver said while he was yet alive, After three days, I will rise again command therefore that the sepulcher be made sure unto the third day lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people he is risen from the dead so the last heir shall be worse than the first Pilate said unto them you have a watch go your way make it as sure as you can what was he saying he was saying you have a watch he was already letting them know you have a commission of men that are authorized to guard your temple, Uh use them. And the Roman temple guards would leave their post at the temple to go guard the tomb of the new temple. (laughs) So they went and made the sepulcher sure sealing the stone and setting a watch. How long were they going to be there? They were going to be there all the way through. Yeah. Three days. They weren't quitting early. They weren't getting off the scene early. And what was it doing? It was setting them up to be the first witnesses yes. of the resurrection. And it wasn't the next day. He didn't follow in line as he had done. Had it been the next day, he would have said. But when he goes from verse 66 to chapter 28 and verse 1 of Matthew, he had to say, in the end of the Sabbath. Because there were more than one day that was in the Sabbath. You can rest assured that if Jesus said, as Jonah was in the belly of a whale for three nights and three days... So shall the Son of Man be. You can rest assured and mark it down that Jesus was also. Which means the day the Lamb was chosen was the 10th of Abib. And the day the Lamb was slain was the 13th of Abib. And the day the Lamb was resurrected was the first day of the week, which would have put the crucifixion on the fourth day of the week which is the day that we call Wednesday. Which is why tonight, yeah. Thank you, Jesus. what better way yes. to commemorate right. the lamb that was slain right. than to recall what he did. If the men could come and help me as we pass out the Lord's Supper... We are not just celebrating a Passover of how God brought us out of Egypt, but we are celebrating the work that Jesus Christ did. Yes. I'm going to take each one of these. You guys can take those and pass that out. Go ahead and pass those around. In Hebrews chapter 5, and I close with this. Hebrews chapter 5, there's something interesting here. The Apostle's making an argument of how we have a high priest that is greater than anything prescribed for in the Aaronic priesthood, called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. But look at what it says here when it was talking about Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. And verse 9. I didn't give you this, but we're going to go there. Hebrews 5 and verse 7. Speaking of Jesus Christ, it said this, "...who in the days of His flesh, when He had offered up prayers and supplications speaking about here his prayer in the garden, look at what it says. With strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. Paint a picture. You want a picture painted. The author of Hebrews was doing that here. In the days of His flesh, He offered up prayers and supplication, strong crying and tears. I don't know. I know God can fill people with the Holy Ghost without them shedding a tear. Maybe it's just my personality and my my culture, but have you ever had a come-to-Jesus meeting with just you? (laughs) Nobody else is around. Or maybe you've had it with, with everybody around, and but you didn't care who was around. You get to a point of strong crying and tears. Of agony. And it said, though he were a son, look at this in verse 8, though he were a son, what does that mean? Though he were a son, he had all the divine prerogatives of God manifest in him. He had access. He could have said, this isn't my inheritance. I don't belong here. But it says, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Right. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey Him. Jesus Christ, it says, and I wrote this in my devotion earlier this week, He learned obedience by suffering. I don't know if it's possible for us to really fulfill being obedient to Christ without there being some suffering. Now, I'm not talking about torture and physical suffering. I'm talking about the suffering of putting your life on a cross, your dreams, your wills, your desires, your dreams, your ambitions, your hopes. Well, God, I know this is your way, but God, I've got a better way. Have you ever told God that? Yet Jesus learned obedience. In those last moments, he's praying, Lord! Lord! We don't have to do it this way. We can change it. No, this is the way it's been established for hundreds of years. On the 10th, the lamb is chosen. On the 13th, the lamb is slain. You've got to walk through obedience. And because of his love for you and me, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities and being made perfect. He obeyed without sin. He became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Today, I'm not here to argue on what year it was or what day he died. But I am here to argue that the Word is right. Right. And we can't twist the Word to make it fit into our life. We have to lay our life down and follow the example that Christ gave to us. Would you stand together with me today?